welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I am bummed out. It's one of those moments where this heavy project of reading a ton of books every day and synthesizing the information and then telling you guys about the information just seems a little bit useless. Um, yesterday, uh, there was a huge protest at the university I go to, UC Berkeley, uh, that erupted into violence when a bunch of outside agitators came and started fires. Uh, it's just one in a daily litany of moments of political incivility and crisis that has marked the last couple months. I have a weird kind of detachment from a lot of this because I spend most of my time thinking about events of the past, and because of that, I see things from a kind of big perspective. I notice a ton of time in 18th century history, for example, when there was massive riots and protests and everybody thought that everything was collapsing and it wasn't collapsing. Long-term trends took over, things righted themselves, nothing changed. And so when each individual crisis or political thing happens, I think, well, this is probably not a big change. This is probably just a blip that will, in the long run, smooth itself out. But then, on the other hand, I notice just how quickly things in history do change, just how important single events are, and that's what I'm getting scared about, because I can see something like 1914 happened. In 1913, the world looked much like it does today. It was global, it was stable, there were strong nations that cooperated in a ton of international agreements, and people were getting generally wealthier and better off. And then, in a couple weeks, because of some stupid people in power, some severe accidents, and because of increased bellicosity, there was a war that ate up the entire world. And so I'm torn. Sometimes I think everything's going to be okay. Sometimes I think we're one matchstick away from everything going on fire. And this morning when I woke up to front page news stories about protests in my university, it made my heart sink a bit. So I've had a real lot of trouble reading this morning and in producing this podcast. Uh, but anyway, let's get to it. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be closing out uh, our readings on the Industrial Revolution. We're going to keep on touching back on it as we continue this podcast because it's incredibly important. So many things touch on it, but I want to take this opportunity to give a kind of broad narrative about what the Industrial Revolution is from about 1600 to 1850. And you can think of this as kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of a lecture that I might give if I ever to become a professor about what the Industrial Revolution is. So let's start our discussion of the Industrial Revolution in about 1600. At this point in time, Britain was pretty much a nobody in European and the world. Uh, it wasn't big in geopolitics, its economy wasn't much to write home about, nobody really noticed it that much. I mean, it produced wool which was great. Wool was used a lot, and it was a pawn in some of the games of these big dynastic succession battles between Protestants and Catholics and Bourbons and Castilians and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't really center. 
It had two big things going for it that will become increasingly important as the centuries go on. The first is that it was an island. Now, this had been trouble in Britain's early history, and you can see how much trouble it was from the language that we speak. Islands have a lot of coasts. It's hard to defend if you don't have a central state. And that means that Britain, its early history, was marked by invasions. You get Romans who gave us Latin words, Vikings, Saxons, and Danes who gave us Germanic words, and French Normans who gave us all of those, you know, Frenchy words, all invading Britain one after the other in successive waves up until 1066. The second big thing that Britain had that would be very, very important for it was coal deposits. And already in the 16th century, people were using coal for a bunch of stuff because it was cheaper than wood that was, you know, kind of getting over farmed at this point in time. This coal was shipped to big cities, and since Britain was an island, they could ship it from the sea. So the people used sea coals to heat their houses. They also used it in industrial processes to make soap, to boil salt and sugar, and sometimes beer. But coal was inappropriate for a ton of stuff because it was smoky, and so it made a lot of impurities when you're doing stuff like making glass blowing or, or iron manufacture. Glass uh, in the 17th century became coal-fired for the lower grades of glass, and iron became coal-fired in the 18th century. One of the turning points comes in 1688, when William of Orange becomes King of Britain. Why this is a turning state is that it establishes a strong, stable state looked over by an active parliament. There's a number of developments here. First is that there's the establishment of a funded national debt. We've talked about this a lot. This helps defense by allowing Britain to raise money for ships whenever it needs it because people trust that when you lend money to the British state, it will pay you back with a good rate of return. This helps political stability by ensuring that elites were all for the state, that the elites all had the same sort of incentives to keep the state up because if they were invested in government bonds, then they didn't want the state to falter because then they'd lose all their money. It also helps establish growth by ensuring that people, well, the people who invested in things, were not afraid of the government stealing their stuff. They were not afraid of some moment in the future, the government needing some amount of money and then just taking everything from them. This allows Britain to establish a standing navy that is constantly patrolling the oceans that allows it to kind of keep security on the cheap and allows the political elites to worry not about getting invaded, but about keeping things safe and stable at home. Another development is the development of toleration and public discussion. In the civil wars of the 17th century, people were freaked out because it seemed like public discussion of really difficult subjects like religion and politics would eventually lead to violence and war. People worried about things like whether there should be bishops in Britain in the 17th century ended up grabbing swords and killing each other. 
And so a bunch of people in Britain tried a whole lot of stuff to make public discussion possible without violence. So one thing that they did was that they sought answers in numbers like the political arithmeticians that we met earlier. They started to publish tables of facts to establish some kind of objective base for political discussion. They also created polite modes of conversation so that discussion wouldn't break down in rancor. When you disagreed with somebody, you told them in indirect ways, or with facts, or with arguments, so that they wouldn't take it out their swords and stab you. And so there emerged a critical but active public sphere in the coffee houses and clubs of London and other cities where people felt free to discuss not only mercantile stuff like where wars were happening or what the price of grain was in Oslo, but also important things about religion and politics and science. We call this the rise of the public sphere. Now, for the story of the Industrial Revolution, one part of this story of the rise of the public sphere is really important, and that is that people were talking about science and math. They were doing this through making science and math fun in the public. There were a bunch of people who went around from city to city giving lectures on the latest science, giving demonstrations of what science said the world was like. This was experiments involving electricity and vacuums. You know, they would take a, 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 a big glass jar and put a bird in it and make a vacuum in that glass jar and the bird would die, which was surprising but it helped people understand the new scientific idea around vacuums. It was this kind of public science that helped to popularize the new ideas of Isaac Newton, that the world could be understood and seen through identifying universal mathematical physical laws that undergirded everything. This is stuff like the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity, all those things that they teach you in basic physics class were coming online now and people were learning about them and it gave them a kind of leg up. You can see this in scientific societies in the north, in Derby and Birmingham with Bolton uh, and Watt and Wedgwood and all of these guys who become the first inventors of the Industrial Revolution, they were doing it in this public sphere, in these clubs, in these areas where people felt free to talk about politics and science and invention and ideas and philosophy and write like Erasmus Darwin did, the great granddaddy, no, the granddaddy of Charles Darwin, massive poems about biology and evolution. There's also another benefit that Britain had, and that's colonies. It didn't just have colonies like the Dutch or French did, it had diverse colonies which allowed it to have external markets and new places for raw materials that were flexible. And the result of this is, in the 1770s, you start to get what is called the Great Wave of Gadgets. You get the spinning jenny, the mules, Watt's steam engine, and all of these tiny little developments that later become really huge. What's dramatic about this story is that most of them couldn't been invented before, but there was just a flurry of invention in a bunch of areas all at once. And one of the reasons why you have this is that Britain had a lot of skilled tradesmen who knew how to make things. They had 
technical skills in making small metal good like watches and belt buckles and toys. They already had a cotton industry that was working with these kinds of labor-saving devices. And in this time period, you get some of the first factories. A great example is Josiah Wedgwood, whose name will be familiar to my China heads out there, and China being the manufactured good, not the country. He made pottery factories where earthenware was made in coal-fired kilns. He experimented with hundreds of different kinds of glazes and clays until he had the right kind of product that he wanted that would mimic Asian imports like porcelain. And then once he made the product, he invested in new kinds of marketing by getting royal patronage, by getting people to think that it was cool. And this new kind of China was branded and marketed and became a luxury consumer good. And he did this through factories. He got all of the workers together in one place, not only so that they could all use the new capital-intensive uh, uh, machinery like the coal-fired kilns, but also so that Wedgwood could look over their work and make certain that they were doing it right. The idea was to make the manufacture of the potters themselves into a kind of machine. But oddly enough, this first flurry of inventions and these first factories and this first burst of coal-fired industry did not lead to an instant burst of massive growth. It did not lead to the kind of instant takeoff that you get people 40 years ago saying. Instead, growth over the long 18th century in Britain was slow and steady. And when economists look at what this growth was made out of, they see that most of it came not from gains of efficiency, which is what you would expect if everything was happening through new kinds of machines, but rather through increased factors, that is increased inputs, more raw materials and more work. And this kind of growth is not unprecedented in the history of the world. This kind of growth is called Smithian growth, or what uh, E.A. Wrigley calls advanced organic economies. It happens in China and Rome. It happens in a ton of different places all throughout world history. In Britain, this advanced organic society was driven not by new inventions, but by agricultural production and a decrease in the number of people working directly in agriculture. In the 18th century, British people started to move off the land and into cities. This used to be explained by a process of enclosure where uh, wealthy entrepreneurial landlords would take public lands and literally fence them in and turn them into more efficient kinds of farms. This happened, but I think over the past 20 years, this view has been revised, that enclosure didn't actually make more efficient farmland, that more efficient farmland wasn't closed, but that farmland in general, common land and enclosed land, private land and public land, was becoming more efficiently farmed. One of these things that this means is that fewer people were needed to farm uh, the same amount of food. And so people started to leave agriculture, pulled by the high wages of the city, pulled by the new opportunities that one could get in a place like London. One of the reasons why this was, was because of the whole range of new kinds of stuff that people could enjoy. Because of tea and coffee and chocolate, all these things coming from the tropics. Because of new belt buckles and newspapers and books, all of these new consumer goods that were being developed in Britain. 
And to buy this stuff, you needed more money. So if you were a yeoman in Britain and you wanted to get a tea set for your wife or you wanted to get a belt buckle for your kid or you wanted to get a book for yourself, you had two choices. You could either work harder and longer to get more money or you could move to London and one of the provincial cities where wages were higher so that you could get more money. And this led to urbanization and increased intensity of work before industrialization in something that's called the Industrious Revolution or Proto-Industrialization. But I just want to note that this is still par for the course. We've not reached the decisive break with world history. We've not gotten to some place where there's no turning back. This is something that happens in world history again and again and again. You get increased urbanization, increased efficiency, and these kind of advanced organic economies coming up in places. An example of this comes in 1873 uh, in the McCartney expedition. Britain sends off a bunch of merchants to China with a whole bunch of stuff saying, hey, look, China, we have all these great things. You should buy them for us. And China says, we've never valued ingenious articles, nor do we have the slightest need of your country's manufacturers. So the Industrial Revolution was kind of being born, but it was not yet online. For this, we have to wait for the 19th century. And there's a bunch of different factors that play in. One of these is that the first wave of inventions was met by a bunch of other inventions that helped make this first wave of inventions more useful. Watt's patent on the steam engine expired in 1800, which allowed people to experiment with better ways of making steam engine. Um, and for this, we can thank the increased scientific and mechanical education of the common people that was getting pushed by these scientific, statistical, and philosophical societies that we spoke about that were blooming in all of these provincial cities. Iron manufacture became increasingly efficient because people were starting to find ways to surmount problems with coal smelting and wrought, making wrought iron through coal power. Big moment here is the rolling and puddling method made by Court in the 1780s. This meant that whereas Britain was importing most of its iron in 1700, in 1800 it started to export iron. Now, in the early 19th century, it would be too much to call it a revolution because for iron, most of the iron was low quality. High quality stuff still came from Sweden. And in cotton manufacture, Britain was getting increased efficiency, but cotton was still not a really big industry. But these things started to move together. Improve steam engines and improve iron allowed people to build railroads. And once you build railroads, which were first used only to ship coal and raw materials, then the price of bulk goods began to drop and coal became a lot more accessible. And this led to improvements not only in the critical industries of cotton and iron and railways, but in a whole bunch of different industries that started to pick up on the cheap energy of coal. For example, in agriculture, you get a ton of different agricultural development from steam drills to plows to threshing devices. And what does this have to do with coal? Well, a lot of these were built with new, cheaper 
iron and so you could do more things. So agriculture became more efficient. You also have, because of increased markets, people engaging in scientific breeding of farm animals. This is when a ton of the different breeds of cows and pigs and donkeys and, and, and dogs start to develop because now that you have large markets, you can get agricultural people specializing. And so they need, just like they need specialized tools, so too do they need specialized animals. You don't just need a dog for hunting and guarding and herding sheep. You can just have a sheep dog. With food production, you get things like canning, um, the development of large ovens that are fired by coal to make mass-produced baked goods. Uh, you get brewing, which is incredibly big because it becomes the first professionally managed, vertically integrated corporate enterprise in Britain. Why is that? Well, because to brew stuff, you need a ton of raw materials, you need a ton of metal capital goods to produce the brewing, and you need a lot of energy to boil everything. And so these become some of the first modern industries. You also get improvements in grain milling, glass manufacturing, and you start to get the first large-scale factories. Factories help with two things. They help to discipline workers, and they help industrialists use bigger and more expensive machines. This is a bit of a feedback loop. If you use expensive machines, you want to make sure that your workers take care of them, and you also have to keep them running all the time. So you put the machines in one place and you get the workers come to you. This also shifts the nature of work. Work used to be done on a piece rate system. The worker is in charge of the intensity of his or her work and gets paid by the amount of stuff that they produce. What you get now is time-based systems of wages, where people are paid for the time that they spend working, much like we have today. And these factories were awful. People were poor and overworked. There was no oversight of them because people were moving from country to town and the towns were exploding. You got a huge pressure on urban infrastructure like sewage and towns that were not being kept up by local government. But even though we might identify the 19th century as the golden age of the factory, the spread of factory production was slow and uneven, and the benefits of scale and scope were not a definitive factor in choosing whether or not factories would come in a particular industry. Even when you did have factories, you'd get a ton of external subcontracting for small-scale handicraft industries. And, of course, factory production didn't suit particular kinds of trades that were dependent on volatile fashion or delicate tailoring or batch production. The turning point when we can really say that the Industrial Revolution was happening was late. It was about 1840 or maybe even 1850. And here you get the expansion of the kinds of critical manufactured goods that become Britain's mark on the world stage. Here's where you get railroads and machine tools and cotton goods being exported all around the world. But still now, the big money wasn't in manufacturing. There were a ton of people being employed in it, but the big money was in finance and shipping and insurance. That's where people were getting really, really rich. 
So I hope that this made sense. Uh, thanks very much for listening to me on Making of Historian today. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the art. Visit us at historian.live for a book list, share us on social media, give us a rating on iTunes, and do all that. Thanks very much, and I'll see you guys tomorrow.